Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And John Simon. Today we're going to talk about focus groups. And this is part one where we're going to discuss the benefits, the approaches, and the limitations of focus groups. I've been around about as long as you have, a little longer than you have as an attorney. And I remember back in the 1990s, early 1990s, somewhere in there, I had my first focus group. And it was exotic and unusual. It was something that was rarely done, except on the biggest cases. It was extremely expensive. I believe back then in those dollars, it was $30,000 to run one. They had special centers set up with people who ran the center and they would have one-way glass, and it was something that was not done often. Now, it's a different situation. So you do a lot of these. I, maybe I'll just let you respond to that much so far. Eric, my experience is similar to yours, and you just described perfectly my first experience with focus groups. It was incredibly expensive, and we went to a facility built for it, and it was really something unusual and out of the ordinary. And since then, I don't know how many I have done. I have been probably a couple hundred focus groups I've been involved in in the last 20 years, 25 years. Some of them we've done that are a little more elaborate and involved. I've done them with outside companies, but most of them we do in in our office today. We have an area, I don't want to call it a studio. It's not really a studio, but an, an open area that allows us to bring people in, have the focus group. We have enough space to split them up in groups. I think every case that, that we have, every case that I have, before it goes to trial, we do some some type of focus group on it. And most often, probably more than one. But I think I have learned more from uh, doing focus groups, and I continue to learn more from focus groups about my case than I ever have before. You have such things as a confirmation bias. You tend to only see the things that will help your chosen theory of what your case is about you tend to not be able to see evidence that runs against you as well. It's just wired into the human animal and we, there's nothing we can do about it. So the focus groups are an amazingly effective way to bring neutral parties into your case so you can let them see what it's all about. And it's very different than probably the way that you see it, no matter how well intended you are. You know, Eric, we've been talking about why we do focus groups and how they've evolved in our, in our practice over the years, but I think we might've missed the start. And that is, what is a focus group? How would you describe if somebody has never done one, they've never, I'm, I'm sure we have some listeners who've never participated in a focus group. What is a focus group? What are we talking about? It is trying to get neutral parties, parties who don't care about the outcome before they walk into this situation and ask them. What do you think about this case? And it's a valuable piece of information every time you do it and however you do it, but there's many ways to do it. I think every one of us, uh, whether we've done a formal focus group or not, we're always focusing our case. We're talking to people in the office about it, talking to other attorneys, some of the secretaries, paralegals. I pretty much have presented every case I've ever tried to Margie, I mean, my wife, to bounce it off of her. Sometimes we're too close to the case. And worse, we fall in love with our cases sometimes. We think this is the way and nobody else can see it any other way. But as you said, it's a really complex process for people to 
hear the case, hear the information, filter it, look at it in their worldview. And I think you need to do a focus group. If you're going to try a case, you need to do a focus group, period. And I think it's really come to that. And there are ways to do it that you can do it economically. You can do it even in smaller cases. And it just it just provides so much valuable information. I don't know how anybody could get ready to try a case and actually go try a case without first running at least one focus group. I'm, I'm going to go back to the confirmation bias and, and because it's so powerful, it is so deceiving, and we're so helpless in the, in the face of it that even when lawyers do focus groups, when the results come out, it's not usually uniform. There's usually a, you know, a smattering of people who are more or less favorable to your theory. And we got to be careful when looking at these results, not to just hone in on the people that are favorable to our case and go, hey, look, this group over here gave us favorable rating on our issues and maybe on our verdict. So the confirmation bias is, is just all over the place. And I see it as a constant battle to try to even that table. So let's get started. First, I want to talk about why you do a focus group. What are the benefits of doing a focus group specifically? First, it provides valuable information about what works in your case, what's persuasive, what's not, what evidence you want to use, how you want to present it, whether you want to use that information in the case. Next, it identifies key issues, both good issues and bad issues. And generally, you know what those are going in, but almost every time you find, every time, there's no, there's no exception. I think every time I've done a focus group, I find out something that I wasn't thinking about and something that I didn't really hone in on on the case. The other thing you can find out is what, what kind of jurors respond most favorably to your case. I'll give you an example. We tried a case, and it was a child who it was a medical malpractice case involving a little girl, about three years old. Her parents had taken her to the emergency room multiple times and kept getting sent home, and things ended up turning out real bad for her. And, and we did in-person focus groups. We did a series of online focus groups. Moms were very, very strongly in favor of our case on both liability and damages. It was this correlation. And I don't remember exactly what the percentages were, whether it was 80-20 or but there was, there was a big increase between, mom, not, not even dads. I mean, we didn't see that correlation with dads. We saw it with moms. And I, I think there was probably an 85% correlation between moms finding us on liability, you know, versus non-moms. And we ended up trying that case and we knew that going in. And you could look at that and say, well, obviously, you know, that's obvious, but it's obvious generally, but the correlation, the strength of the correlation was really surprising. It was one thing to say, well, we have a case involving a parents and their and their three-year-old daughter, and anybody who has a parent can empathize, can relate to that, and you probably want parents, but the correlation was just striking. It told us that if we had 12 moms on our jury, we weren't going to lose the case, basically. We would think that parents would be more inclined to favor the parents in this case, but were we prepared to say it was that important? I don't know. But the focus group gave you that information. So sometimes it's not so intuitive. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. And that's what those focus groups can do for you. They can, they can tell you something that your gut is not saying is important. John, I remember a case where we focused it. I think you brought a whole bunch of people into the room that were with the firm, I believe, after the case had been focused by paid focus jurors. And we all had a discussion. And I remember there was one secretary, you know, everybody thought it was a strong case and, uh, except for one. And it was a, a woman who just wasn't buying what you were selling on your case. And I remember what you did is that 
you gravitated right down to her. You sat down next to her and you, you said, I need to know what you're thinking. I, this is really important that I, I need to know what's, what's not convincing to you. One of the first focus groups that I did involved a railroad crossing case. And I represented a young woman, 19, 20 years old, who was a passenger in a car that was hit by an Amtrak train. And it was a crossing in the city of St. Louis. It was a crossing that had the mechanical arms that, that guard the crossing. And we, we had, and the only eyewitness that was able to testify was, I believe it was an electrician in a van right behind the, the car that got hit by the train, right behind the car where my client was, was riding. And this guy was right on the scene and we took his deposition and he said, I was in a van sitting up high. I could see everything. And he said, the arm was up, no lights were on. And the car in front of me pulled out and got hit by this train. With that testimony, we thought that the case is over. This is done. This is the only eyewitness and he is neutral witness. And the arm was, you know, the, the gate wasn't working. You know, the gate was not working. Obviously we had the engineer who had the the view of the gate where the car was coming from he testified oh yeah it was you know it was working but obviously you know he's down the track so in any event it was the, the evidence was almost about as clear as you could get almost undisputed that the arm wasn't working so we thought it's a slam dunk it's done we we focused the case and what happened almost made me physically ill in the you know watching the the group deliberate and what happened was I think we had 15, 18, two groups deliberating, or maybe it was one group with 10 or 12 people. And I'm sitting there, and this was in one of those studios where you're behind the one-way mirror, and, and we're listening to them talk about the evidence in the case. And keep in mind, the only evidence in the case, the only credible evidence was from an independent eyewitness who said the gate didn't go down, the gate was up. It malfunctioned. And so I'm watching, and over the course of about an hour, the jury decided that the gate was down and that the driver drove around the gate and got hit by the train. And and that's what they got to. That was the conclusion that they reached. Without evidence of that. Without evidence. And it was it was incredible because what they based it on was the driver was a young man who was 19 years old and he was driving a red sporty car, sort of a, a sports car. And it was the middle of the day. And most of the jurors, the older jurors, and it was mostly mostly older women, I think, on the jury, were all talking about how these young kids in these cars, they drive around them all the time, and that had to be what happened. Keep in mind, there was no evidence of it. And so they literally took this stereotype, this impression they had of a 19-year-old kid in a red sports car at a railroad crossing, and they didn't have evidence, but they just plugged it in. They came to the conclusion that this young man drove around the gate, even though there was no credible evidence to support that. And I saw that and was like, what in the hell? What is going on here? I remember thinking I wasted my time going to law school and taking, de <laughs> taking <laughs> depositions in the case because, the, you know, at, at that point I thought to myself, well, the evidence, I guess, doesn't really matter. People are just going to fill in the gaps and you know, they're going to ignore the evidence and just assume certain things that there's no evidence of. So what do you do? We ended that, went back to the office over the next two, three weeks. We tried to figure it out. We watched them deliberate. We also talked to them afterwards about it. And so we learned something from doing that focus group. And we did another one about, about three or four weeks later. Same case, same evidence, one difference. 
And what we did, we spent no time talking about the young man driving the vehicle. He was not our client. He wasn't the one that was severely injured. Second time around with this focus group, we presented evidence about this young man driving the car. And he was just a wonderful young man. He was going to college at night. He was working a full-time job, lived with his mom, helped out around the house, did the grocery shopping, holding down a full-time job, going to college at night. And what we did in this, the second time around, when we focused that case, the only change we made was to present this positive information about who this young man was. And the jury never even talked about driving around the gate. It was done. It was out of the case. They were like, okay, there's an eyewitness on the scene, says the gate wasn't working. It was up. It malfunctioned. Let's talk about damages. So what I learned very early on from focus groups was you learn things from a focus group that you're just really not thinking about. That's the kind of thing that it might not be obvious to you with your case, but there may be some hidden minefields in your case that you're not going to find out until you put it in the hands of a focus group and, and let them talk about it. Believe me, they're going to talk about everything. A focus group is going to talk about evidence, what's not in the evidence. If you think you're keeping stuff out, they're going to talk about the insurance. They're going to talk about who's paying the bills. They're going to talk about the attorneys getting their fee and how much the attorney's going to make on this. You just hear everything from A to Z. And what focus groups have taught me early on is we're fooling ourselves in, in trial when we think, well, we're going to file a motion and eliminate and keep this out, or we're going to keep that out. You can keep it out all you want, and the jury's going to talk about it anyway. If it's in evidence, they're going to talk about it. If it's not in evidence, they're going to talk about it. And they're going to be talking about all kinds of things that aren't relevant, aren't in evidence. It really is at first unsettling, but then when you've done this enough and you realize that's what you want to know. You don't want to know what people think just of the evidence in the case. You want to think about how they filter that evidence and what other things that they bring in that that's going to affect their decision. It just reminds me that as a species, we are so willing to judge other people by the thinnest of evidence or almost nothing. And your, your jury in this case looked at the red sports car and wrote up a story of who this guy was. And it sounds like what you did is you gave him real information and as easy it is to concoct a stereotype, it apparently is very easy to destroy it with real evidence is what you did. You told him a story of a nice young fellow and all of a sudden the red sports car became just nothing much. That's an interesting story. And these things are so subtle though, that they can, they can swim right past you and you won't know that the jury's about to hook onto something. Yeah. What the jury's thinking about back in the jury room is probably not what you think they're thinking about. <laughs> so, and I, you know, I haven't sat in any jury rooms listening to jurors deliberate in, in my cases, but I have watched literally hundreds of focus group juries deliberate. And I can tell you, they're not bound by anything. They'll decide that case on everything from A to Z. But, you know, that's, that's what you want to be, you know, you need to be aware of that. You need to know how to deal with it and have some strategy to deal with it. I'll tell you the other thing too, that, that focus groups are great help with, and that is, is framing how you frame your case, you know, how you frame the issues in your case. And, and I'll give you a couple examples. We had a case involving opioid addiction, and we represented a young man who had gotten terribly addicted over a series of, of many years. And we did some focus groups on that case and, and the amounts that he was on and the time, the liability was very, very strong in the case. We knew that. But the concern we had was he willingly took the medication. He was a drug addict. He is a drug addict. He got addicted to the medication. And so is there some responsibility on, on the part of the patient? And really, that was their defense in the case. 
So the question really became, how do we present this case? And so we knew we wanted to focus on the conduct of the defendant because it was just so, so outrageous. The amounts of medication, the amount of opioids that were being prescribed each day and for, for so long. And so what we found out was when we focused more on the devastation and damage, and it did, it devastated this man's life. It broke up his marriage, broke up his family. But if our focus in the case was the devastation that it did to our client, if that was our main frame of, of the case, our chances of winning this case went way down. And if we started this case almost, I don't want to say it, but almost ignoring our client's damages and focusing just specifically on opioids, the defendant's conduct, and what these opioids have done to our community, our results were through the roof. It was like day and night. So when we tried that case, literally the first sentence out of our mouth in opening statement was, we have a problem in our community with opioids. And by your involvement in this case, we're asking you to help us start solving that problem, right? That was the way we framed the case. But we did that after testing it with focus groups. We found out from our focus groups what frame worked and what frame didn't work so much. It just illustrates the power of being able to gather people who don't have any, any interest in who wins the case to tell you what they think and help you fine-tune not only, like you say, the biases and the particular types of evidence, but to how you frame the case. That's very powerful stuff. Another case that we had was we, we represented a young man on a motorcycle who was, was uh, had the right of way and a delivery company, one of their drivers pulled the truck out in, the, in front of the intersection. Our client on his motorcycle ran into the truck and he failed to yield. He admitted he failed to yield. He admitted it was his fault. And we ended up focusing that case thinking again, boy, this is straightforward. Liability is admitted. But, you know, we had a young man on a motorcycle, okay? And we were winning the case, but not with enthusiasm, with the enthusiasm we thought we should have. And it was a lot of things. One of the things I think was you got a young man on a, on a motorcycle. But what we did is we changed the frame of the case. The other issue in the case was the driver. And we had videotaped deposition of the driver. The driver of the truck that failed to yield was a very, very good guy had a military background, very likable. Uh, the evidence basically showed he was overworked, too many deliveries, all this kind of thing. And so what we ended up doing is we ended up changing the theme or frame in our case and, and made it completely about the company. We asked questions at trial about how many deliveries did you have? And it was a crazy number, maybe a hundred deliveries. And, and he had to make all the deliveries by the end of the day, or he couldn't go home, didn't get a lunch break. And so going in, our case was mostly about the driver. And after we had focused it a couple of times and thought about it, the focus groups convinced us that the way, way better case was to leave the driver alone, even though he failed to yield. And our entire case was this company whose policies put this driver in, in that situation. And when we framed it that way with our focus groups, our win rate increased significantly. The damages increased significantly. It was just a better way to do it. We, we, wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have been able to test that or even know that necessarily without a focus group. I keep thinking back to uh, the science of it because I find it fascinating that you had the same facts all on the table in both cases. All the facts were there, the way the turn was made and who this guy was. But the spotlight of attention is very limited in, in humans. We, we can't think about everything easily all at once. So you shift that spotlight into the driver and how he was you know, hurried and harassed by his employer 
as opposed to the way he conducted that left turn. All that still is right in front of the jury, but you're focusing on the latter now. What a difference. There are different kinds of focus groups, and some you do live in person, and there are some really tremendous advantages, I think, to that, the group dynamics, the discussion, but there's also online focus groups, and, and what the online focus groups allow you to do is present your case to many, many more people. It's very uh, cheap. It's not nearly as expensive. And for the cost of doing one live focus group with 12 people, you could probably focus 250 people online with, with the facts of your case. We present the case online to maybe two, 300, 400 people. And when we do that, we not only ask them questions about winning, losing, amount of damages, but also we'll throw in certain questions about issues in the case. And what we try to do is we try to find a correlation between how they answer that question and whether they're with us or not on liability. And I'll give you an example. Back to the opioid addiction case. We focused that, as I said, multiple times online, probably the four, five, six hundred people or more. And one of the things we did is every time we did it online, we had a series of 24, 30 questions about it. It doesn't even need to be related to the case. But one of the questions that we asked was, is drug addiction a medical condition or a moral failing? In other words, is it a matter of choice or is it a medical condition? And what we found out through four or 500 online focus group participants the answer to that question, how they answered that question, pretty much told us how they were going to find on liability. The people who said that drug addiction is a medical condition, not a moral failing, I think 90% of those people consistently found in our favor on liability. I mean, that is incredible. But we walked into that courtroom knowing if this person answers this question, there's a 90% correlation that they're going to find for us on liability in this case. Think about how, how powerful that is instead of just walking in blind. So obviously that's what we did. We spent a day on our portion of the Vordire and the entire morning was identifying who those people were. Actually, we identified the, the people who said it's a moral failing. It's not a medical condition. And the flip side is we knew that none of those people, no matter what the evidence was, was going to find for our client pretty much. I have this image of you know, the defendant doing the same thing you're doing, digging down deep, having focus groups going online, figuring out the same potential issue. Of course, it might or might not happen. A lot of people don't do any focus groups still, but I imagine that's the way the world is, is moving generally, the cheaper these things get. Nowadays, you can focus multiple times. You can pick one particular piece of evidence and the amount that you ask for. You can change that and that be the only thing that you change in the focus group online and you're getting a sample size that's statistically significant, maybe it's 100, 150 people, and you can see how if you double the ask, how that affects you on liability. I'll give you a very, very simple example of a tremendous benefit of doing a focus group. And this was one major issue in a case. You know, I represented a man who worked for a local utility company. It was an electrical company and was, was horribly injured. And he was, he did something his supervisor told him to do, but it was probably something that he knew he shouldn't be doing. And he was injured. And we, we made a claim against the, the supervisor as well as it was a, it was a product liability case, but based on the facts and the law, we were able to make a claim, a direct claim against the supervisor because of the egregiousness of the conduct. 
Well, we took probably two dozen depositions in the case and the defense was there at every, every deposition, you know, pounding and pounding away. Did you know this was, you know, dangerous? You knew you weren't supposed to do it. And I started thinking, wow, that's a pretty good defense, right? Our client was, was trained. He knew what he was doing. He knew he shouldn't have done it, but nonetheless, his supervisor ordered him to do it. Right. And so that's sort of like two trains meeting on one track. I mean, you know, what, which way do you go with that? Right. And I, I literally thought, wow, that's a pretty good defense, but it's also a pretty good case to listen to your boss, right? If your boss tells you to do it, he's the one ultimately responsible for, for safety. And so what a great, what a great issue to focus. And so that's what we did. We focused that case with the idea being that's the one issue that we need to find out. What do people think about that? They were like, man, who doesn't listen to their boss? You know, they got into things like job security. You're going to lose your job. You got a family to support. And so to me, that was a defense that I thought had some traction. I was very worried about it throughout the course of the case. We did more than one focus group on that specific issue. I was way more worried about it than I should have been, but that's what the focus group told us. So the other thing too is when you do online focus groups, one of the big benefits there is you can test certain theories. You can test specific pieces of evidence. The case we were just talking about, does it help you to admit fault or not? And what you can do is you can run a focus group online with a hundred participants where you take a very strong position and say, you know, the plaintiff doesn't believe that, that he or she did anything wrong. And the defendant's saying it was, it was their fault, all their fault. And we're saying it was all the defendant's fault. And, and you see how you come out, you run the same word for word, focus group, video, everything, all the materials the same, except you make it a little softer and you say the plaintiff acknowledges and admits that this may be in some small part, his or her fault. And you get to test that. You get to see that under the circumstances of the case, is it better for you to admit some fault or, or, or not admit any? A consortium claim. I don't pursue them in every case. You have to have the right case for it. And sometimes you have cases where the consortium claim is, is just as strong and just as valuable or significant as the underlying claim. We talked about this too, I think, when, when John Campbell was with us. And I like his phrase, why guess? Right. Right. Why guess knowledge and information is valuable. It's tremendously valuable based on what we do and testing the upper limit on damages. We do that all the time. Every time we do an online focus group, we'll run it at least two, three times with a different ask. And we'll see whether increasing the amount that you ask for has some impact on, on the rate of success on liability. And you know, usually if you get high enough, it will start having some minimal effect but it allows you to do that. It allows you to test. So there are tremendous benefits. And I, I think most lawyers who try cases nowadays do focus groups, but there is no question. I mean, it's, it, it's uh, so, so valuable and it tells you so much more about your case than you could ever figure out on your own. Absolutely. Yeah. Why guess? It would be obviously Christmas every day for a lawyer who can get a peek into what disinterested people would think about their case. And I, I think there's really probably an unlimited number of ways to do a focus group. Informal focus groups, family, friends, coworkers, there's benefits to that. They don't cost anything. You can do them on the run. You can walk down the hallway and, and talk to somebody in a, in a conference room. But again, that's your family, friends, and coworkers. They're not independent people. But Eric, one of the things I want to talk to you about, we're in the middle of COVID. So here we are in our homes, out of our studio, doing this presentation. We're in the middle of this uh, COVID pandemic. And there's some talk about doing remote focus groups, not online where you send it out to 
30 or 40 people or 100 people or 200 people. But having a group be able to interact maybe on Zoom to, uh, you know, I know I know that some firms are already doing that. Have you had any experience with that? I have not had a focus group Zoom, but I am so impressed with this technology. A few days ago, I had an all-day arbitration. Quite a few witnesses. It went all day. And what was interesting to me is that at the end of the day, after eight hours of argument and testimony, I was telling someone about what I went through. And I did a double take thinking, I think I was there. You know, I had to ask myself, was I actually there? I was, out, you know, I was sitting in my home office looking at a computer screen. So it's fantastic what you can do as far as, you know, the, the pictures and the sounds really do bring you mostly there. I haven't done a, a, a Zoom focus group, but I would imagine you could get a lot done with one. The fact that it's being done remotely, I think, allows easier access to the participants. I mean, they can do it from their home, not traveling to a location and all of this, but something we need to keep exploring. I agree with that. I think there's some studies showing about the effectiveness of interpersonal communication by phone or by digital video or in person. And I think the numbers were something like 30% is effective by phone. And then maybe it jumps up quite a bit. It's like 70% by video, but it's not there. It's not like in person. There's something more to be had by being actually being there. So Eric, are there any limitations? In other words, if I do a focus group or do two of them or three of them and and, and the results are all terrific and the, the online focus groups and in-person focus groups see the case my way, does that mean I'm going to win my case? Well, not all the time, of course. And in fact, when we've done focus groups together, it's it's monopoly money, right? It's not the same. They know they're not awarding real money. So I would think that's the weakest link of it all. If you're thinking about whether you're going to get a verdict and how much the verdict is going to be, you and I have been on these focus groups where we divide the jury into three. So there's three mini juries. They're independently considering the case and you'll see wildly different numbers. I think what everybody needs to understand is the number one limitation on a focus group is it is not a predictor of outcome. It's just not. And, you know, there's several reasons. One of them, as you said, the jurors know, it, a lot of times they know it's not real money that they're awarding. But I think the, the most significant reason that it's not a predictor of outcome is you could focus your case to 500 jurors online. You could do five or six in-person 12 jury panel focus groups. But the, the issue is that statistic, you know, that sample might be large enough so that it's statistically significant. So it is a predictor of what the outcome is going to be in your case. But when you go into the courtroom, the 12 people who are seated in that box, that's 12, right? You don't have 60 or 100. In other words, the, the sample of people that are actually going to decide your case at trial is so small that it, it's not going to necessarily follow what you found in the focus group. More than anything, they don't teach you what the outcome, they're not a perfect by any means predictor of outcome, but they will tell you, I think, how people will react to certain pieces of evidence and how they react to the, the facts of your case, how they react to the frame of, of your case. And those are the things that I think are the most important, not what, what the outcome may or may not be. The smaller your sample size, you're going to get to these fluctuations. So unless you're trying to case in front of 500 jurors or 1,000 jurors, which we don't do, and, and uh, you know maybe if John Campbell gets his way, someday we will, but we won't uh, in the foreseeable future. We're, we're stuck with 12 or 6. We're going to have that risk. That does not bode well for predictability. 
I think that's the the heart of of what we do, right? I mean, I don't know. I I wouldn't want 100% predictability in what we do. <laughs> You're I mean, out takes, of right, right. No, it's you know what? It's 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 the skill set. I mean, that's what the right. skill set of being a traveler is all about. You know, you're going in with 12 people and there's the randomness and the uncertainty. And, and that's where, you know, that's where you earn your keep is figuring out who these people are, how they make decisions, how they decide things and figuring out how to present your case in, in the most persuasive way to that group that's in front of you. Obviously, we got to do our best. We're trial lawyers. We want to help our clients by predicting the outcomes and helping decide whether to settle or whether to try. But it's not perfect. Uh, and that's not to that's not to criticize our attempts to to understand. It's just a limitation. We'll take the group of 18 and, and break them into groups, three groups of six, and let them deliberate, for instance. And it certainly doesn't do you any good to pick all the, you know, six people who all voted for the plaintiff or the defendant, put them all in one room. They got nothing to talk about. They're all going to go in and you know, give each other high fives and, and let's, you know, let's <laughs> sign the verdict form and wrap it up. And what I love doing is I, out of 18 or 24, I will take the, the most pro defense, strong personality that there is. And in the same way on the plaintiff, the two most strong headed embedded, you know, they're just not changing They're just hundred percent with, with either the plaintiff or the defendant. And I always try to get those two, whoever they are, who are the strongest personality and, and the most opposite in their views on the case in the same room. Cause you, that's what you want. You want discussion, you want argument. And I started laughing because we, we did that one time a few years ago, and it was an automotive product uh, case, a product defect with a car, I think it was a roof crush or whatever. And after about 20 minutes in this small group, and it was two, two men who were like going after each other, we literally <laughs> had to go into the room. They were ready to come to blows. <laughs> I mean, they, they just, <laughs> and so rather than get some meaningful discussion, they were so pissed off at each other, they couldn't even talk to each other. And the other four in the group were just like with their eyes wide open thinking, what the hell's going on here? So we literally had to, to separate them. And then we released them like 20 minutes apart so they weren't out in the, in the parking lot beating the hell out of each other. But my point is group dynamics, you can't just add up the individual verdicts. And, and that's why I think online will give you some information, a lot of it good information, but it can't replace an in-person focus group with the discussions and the group dynamics, because it's a completely different ballgame. That's what you're going to be dealing with at trial. Good story. We're here talking about mistakes to avoid. So this is my short list of things that we've done that we, after it didn't work out the first time, we tried not to do it anymore. We never disclose the identity of the parties in the case. We never do that. And you got to be real careful about that. We, we try our best not to disclose the identity of the parties. And the other thing, too, that is a little harder to do, I think, is you really don't want the, the jurors in your focus group, in your, in your in-person focus group, to know who you represent. They've got it figured out, or they, they think they've got it figured out. They, they know you represent one side or the other. That's easier said than done. You really need to be careful of, of what you say, how you present it. And I think, I think it's a mistake to have the lawyers involved in the case be in any way involved in the presentation. We just don't do that in our office. I don't want anybody involved in the presentation during the focus group who has worked on the case or knows anything about the case. And so that, that leads to perhaps the next point, which is you, you need to be careful how you write it up. And it's hard to do. It's really difficult to do that even handily. 
and I've talked to you before about this, and I, I think your inclination is always to just beef up the opposite side because your tendency is to let it sag. Don't try to win your case is the way I put it. Mm -hmm. Your presentation needs to be balanced. I actually, if there's any question about whether uh, we're going to keep a fact in or out, I always keep it in first time around. And I, I make the defense side way stronger than it really is. The other thing we talked about, venue's a big deal. Where you try your case is, is in large part, has a big effect on the outcome. Good lawyers know that. What I do is I will always get jurors on focus groups, either online and in person. I always find the most conservative venue that I can. And I try to fill those seats with jurors who are going to be the worst for the plaintiff. And, and we do. We do that by you know picking locations, venues, counties, because it doesn't do you any good to sit there and have a group of people who all love your case and they decide for you and pat you on the back because guess what? You haven't learned anything. I want to talk to people who hate my case. I want to talk to people that don't like it and I want to know why they don't like it. And that's where you can learn something. So when I say don't try to win your case, get jurors who are going to be critical from the get-go, but also, and I would say not even making it balanced, but give the other side the benefit of the doubt is, mm -hmm. is what I would say. I throw in arguments all the time that would be objectionable at trial. For instance, the defendant standing up and making some argument about whatever, even though I know they're not going to be able to stand up and say it at trial, I throw it in. And you know why I do that is because even though you don't mention it at trial, that's not going to stop the jury from talking about it back in the jury room. And you want to see what they think about that and how you can preempt that. You got to preempt the arguments that they're that are even objectionable because whether they're made or not, the jury's going to be thinking about them. Yeah, this sounds easy, but uh, and I hate to keep bringing back the confirmation bias, but it's invisible. It's a virus. It gets into your brain. It keeps you from seeing things right. And you could, there's a lot of folks who just will insist that I'm giving a balanced presentation of my case, but they're not. And it's just so, so difficult to channel your opponent, to try to act like your, because you're invested in your case. You love your case. You appreciate your client. You know your client. It's so easy to uh, see the facts through that lens. And I think you're, you're doing it right when you just assume. It sounds like you're assuming that you're not going to do it right intuitively that you have to affirmatively go in and beef up the defense if you're a plaintiff. You just have to. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, you know, you're really not gaining anything. You're, you're not getting any, any useful information. Another thing too, to think about that I think should always be done is even though you're not disclosing the identity of the parties, get a signed confidentiality agreement from everybody. Let them know how important it is. Let them know it's a real case. We do that routinely. I would say the list of things that you want to do is, is don't let them know who you are. Don't let them know the identity of the parties to the case. Get a signed confidentiality statement. Above all, don't try to win your case. You're not there to try to win your case. You're there to find out the weak spots in your case and what you can do to fix them. So you want to make a very, very balanced presentation or even unbalanced in the other side's favor. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. We've discussed the benefits, approaches, and limitations of focus groups, and we'll be back with part two later. I'm Eric Beeth. And I'm John Simon. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. 
To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.